Hey, good morning. It's good to uh, see you guys. Glad you're here as we uh, kind of wrap up today our uh, series, My Questions. I was uh, thinking about some of the questions that you guys have asked over the last few weeks and uh, came across some interesting questions that maybe you're also asking, not about the Bible. Maybe maybe you've thought of these questions at times, something like this. Uh, why is there a disclaimer on all state auto insurance commercials that say, not available in all states? Uh, this next one, I'm just asking the question, somebody else wrote it. If pro and con are opposites, wouldn't the opposite of progress be Congress? Yeah. Ah, no clapping. You know. uh, when does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? You ever thought about that? What's the difference? Uh, if ghosts, supposedly, could walk through walls and glide downstairs, why don't they fall through the floor? Uh, when, why is it that when we skate on thin ice, we can get in hot water? I'm not sure how that works. Uh, is there ever a day that mattresses are not on sale? But here's my favorite one. Do Chinese people get English sayings tattooed on their bodies? <laughs> Just asking. Well, last week, we uh, you guys really thought that was funny, didn't you? Um, which may just mean that it was really stupid, huh? I don't know. Uh, last week, we tried to answer your questions about heaven, and uh, that was, uh, I hope, uh, enjoyable for you and uh, challenging a little bit as we try to think about that. Today, I want to take a handful of the other questions that you have asked and uh, do my very best to answer those. Now, I'm not going to get through all the questions that you have asked up until this point, and so as I told you last week... Uh, What I intend to do starting this week is to take one or two of those questions every week and answer them uh, in my blog over the course of the next month or so until I've answered all of the questions that you have uh, submitted. So here's how you get to my blog. If you'd like to uh, go on there, uh, you can just go straight to jeffswearingen.wordpress.com. You can also go on and subscribe to it, and that way each week when I actually update it, you'll get an email reminder that says, hey, it's been updated, and you can go on and see what questions uh, that I've been answering uh, that week. Uh, it will take me some time, but I will do my best to get through all of the questions uh, that you've asked. Last week, we also gave you the opportunity, as I was talking, uh, to ask some follow-up questions about the topics, and we're going to do the same thing today. If you want to ask a follow-up question to one of the topics that I'll handle today, you can text that question uh, to this number, and I've allowed, again, some time at the end. Our guys will put all that together, and we'll try to answer some of those questions. Uh, lesson we did learn last week, it's better if you ask sooner rather than later, Last week we had a whole bunch of questions come in right at the end, and the guys just didn't have time to uh, coordinate all of that. So ask them as you think of them and send them that way. Well, uh, sometimes the question that people might ask is, where did God come from? Now, that question seems so big to me that I didn't want to try to tackle it. So I asked one of our shepherds, Ken Edwards, to go out and see what answers he could find to that question. Drew, where do you think God comes from? Heaven. Heaven? Do you want to tell us where God comes from? He comes from heaven. Comes from heaven? Very nice. Hi, where do you think God comes from? Your heart. Probably the Holy Spirit. Your heart. Heaven. Heaven. (laughs) The Bible. The Bible. Heaven. (laughs) I don't know. Hi, where do you think God comes from? 
Well, he was already made before anything's made. He made everything, so I'm not, don't know where he's coming from. Very nice. Thanks very much. So I've invited Ryan up to answer the rest of our questions this morning. <laughs> well, uh, here's the first question that you asked that I want to try to tackle today. It was asked in a couple of different ways. And you asked, how can we know the Bible is true or how can we trust the validity and authority of the Bible? And so let me uh, try to tackle that because it's a very, it's really an important question. It is a central and vital question uh, to us as Christ followers. Um, have you ever driven by a construction site and maybe it looks something like this where they have uh, poured the foundation, the slab, but then they have also begun right kind of in the middle constructing this concrete object. And at first you think that looks kind of strange that they're building that before they build any of the walls until you recognize it's a bank and they are building the vault and they have to build it before they build the walls because it's too big. They can't get it in there afterwards. And it's vital to the bank. You can't have a safe bank without a good vault, can you? All the valuable things are stored in there. And so for the business of a bank, the vault is vitally important and central to what they do. Well, as the vault is to the bank, I think the Bible is to us as Christ followers. This book contains valuable information that guides our lives. This book is central and vital to who we are. This book is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And if we don't have this book, it would be difficult for us to grow in our understanding of who God is and how He wants to work in our lives. So let me offer you a few reasons why I think you can trust the Bible. Let me begin by looking at a couple of verses that the Bible has to say about itself and, and where we got the Bible from. Second Timothy chapter 3 may be familiar to some of you. It says this, all Scripture, or all of the Bible, is God-breathed, or God-inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then in Second Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, we read this, For prophecy, or the words of God, never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these Words that we read in the Bible are not from the minds of men. They are from the mind of God. So how did we get the Bible? Well, God inspired or breathed into or placed in the minds of men the words that He wanted to be in the Bible. And under the direction of God, then the men penned these words. Now, I think it's interesting to note there are 40 different authors who wrote parts of the Bible spread over the course of quite a few different years in many different places in two different languages. And yet, there is incredible consistency in the Bible from beginning to end. That doesn't happen unless someone is inspiring the process, unless God is placing the words into the minds of those men. Now, after those authors had penned the words, then over the course of time, carefully and meticulously, the Bible was copied so that the words of the Bible could be spread to other people, and we call those copies manuscripts. How many of you were in high school or college? You read Homer's Iliad, or at least the Cliff Notes. Yeah, more of you are probably the Cliff Notes than the books. You know that Homer's Iliad we have was written about 650 BC, and we have today 650 manuscripts or copies of Homer's Iliad. The copies that we have date back to around. Um, 
the third century. Okay? The earliest copies that we have. So it was originally written in 650 BC. The earliest copies that we have are from the third century, about a thousand years span between that. Take um, uh, Aristotle's The Poetics. It was written about 343 BC. Now, the earliest copies of manuscripts that we have date to about 1100 AD. That's a span of about 1400 years between the original time that it was written and the earliest copies that we can find today. And then there is Caesar's History of the Gallic Wars. There are only about a dozen manuscripts remaining. It was written originally in 50 B.C. The earliest manuscripts that we have today date to about the 9th century. That's a span of about a thousand years between the time the originals were written and the earliest copy that we can find today. And yet, we find those books to be reliable and authoritative. You don't hear people questioning, can we really trust these books? Why is that when there is such a large span of time between the originals and the earliest copies that we have today? Well, one of the reasons is that scholars have discovered that ancient copyists took their jobs very seriously. When they copied books, they were meticulous about their accuracy. They went through a huge process to make sure that they were accurate as they copied those books, including the Bible. Now, I think we would all agree that the more copies or manuscripts that you could find of a particular book, the better evidence that you have, right? Well, here's something interesting about the Bible. Today, we have over 20,000 manuscripts or copies of the Bible that date back to as early as the second century, leaving only a span of a few decades between the time the originals were written and the manuscripts that we have today. The Bible is accurate and reliable. There's other historical proof that we tells us the Bible is true. Do you know that every single verse in the Old Testament and New Testament of the Bible, those every single verse has been reproduced in the writings of the early church fathers in every single century dating back to the first century. No other book in history can make that claim. Only the Bible. There is also incredible amounts of archaeological evidence that prove the validity of the Bible. And I don't have time to go on the endless list, but let me just give you one example today. There were discoveries made by Robert Ballard, who is the guy that uh, discovered the Titanic. He also has discovered evidence that gives proof to a cataclysmic type flood, just as the one that is described in the Bible that would have happened around the same time as it is described in the Bible. And he has found archaeological evidence that proves the validity of the flood. There is also the fulfillment of prophecy that proves the authority of the Bible. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. These were a number of manuscripts of the Bible. These manuscripts dated back to hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Yet in these very same manuscripts that dated to hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, we found prophecy or descriptions of how and where Jesus would be born. And wouldn't you know that every single one of those prophecies were fulfilled just as they were written hundreds of years before the actual events. That doesn't just happen by chance. That only happens if God was guiding the process 
inspiring, breathing into men the writing of the Bible. I believe we can trust in the validity and the authority of God's Word. Science also proves the validity of God's Word. Listen to what Job 26 verse 7 says. It says, He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. It wasn't until some 3,000 years later that scientific knowledge came around to the thinking that God had suspended the earth over nothing, that it was a planet hanging in space. There were all of these other ideas before that. And yet Job, 3,000 years earlier, says God suspends the earth over nothing. Or about, about what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40. He writes of God, he says, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, you know, even when Christopher Columbus sailed and discovered America, what was the common thought among scientists about the shape of the earth? They, they said it was flat, didn't they? And yet, in 700 B.C., when Isaiah is written, Isaiah knows that the earth is a circle. How can that be? It only happens if God was in the one telling him that. If God was breathing into him the words of Scripture. So I have complete trust this morning that when I read the Bible, that it is truth, that it is God's Word, that it is reliable, and I can trust it to guide my life. Now let me suggest a couple of other resources if you want to study this whole topic further. First, let me give you this quote from Josh McDowell. He says this, sums it up well. He says, Only God could have created a book of such antiquity which has been transmitted accurately from the time it was originally written it is correct when it deals with historical people and events, contains no scientific absurdities, and remains true and relevant to all people for all time. And I would say he's right. So here's a couple of resources if you'd like to study this topic further. You can check out the book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. You can also check out the book that was written by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. In both of those books, they address this topic and give you further evidence and actually, I would say to you, almost any book that you'd pick up by either of those authors, Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell, uh, would be great reads for you in terms of helping to understand uh, logical explanations for the Bible and the existence of God and creation and all those kinds of things. Well, here's another question that you ask. Someone asked the question, why are so many of Jesus' parables included in the Bible? And I'll give just a very brief answer for this. Parables were the primary way that Jesus chose to teach people while He was here on earth. Um, if you think about it throughout all of history, stories have always been the way that people choose to teach difficult truths. And it's because we learn best through stories. That's why I tell stories when I talk here. And that's why I do things like break mirrors if you were here a few weeks ago. Because we remember those kinds of things. You'll never forget that if you were here, will you? Jesus taught in parables. It was His primary way of teaching difficult truths to people so they would understand them. And so if His teachings were going to be included in the Bible, it's inevitable that there would be a large number of parables because that was His primary way of teaching. Here's another question that uh, you ask. Uh, you ask, is baptism by water required? Now, I don't think there is any doubt that Jesus instructed those who wished to follow Him to be baptized. Let me show you why I think that in the Bible. So if you brought your Bible, why don't you open to Matthew chapter 28. 
Matthew is the first book in the New Testament part of your Bible, and I'm going to be in chapter 28, the last chapter. And I'm going to move through a lot of Scripture today. I hope you'll try to follow along. If I get ahead of you, at least jot down uh, these references so that you can go home and read these for yourself. Here's what happened. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus, this is after His death on the cross and His resurrection. He has interacted with some of His followers after this. And this is the last event recorded in the New Testament before Jesus goes back to heaven. So these are His final words here on earth. And this is what He says, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have authority. And with that authority, I am telling you as my followers, I want you to go and tell the story of Jesus. I want you to go and help other people become my followers. I want you to make disciples or make followers of people in every nation. And as you do, I want you to baptize them. And that word that is used for baptize there is the Greek word baptizo that means literally to immerse or to dunk in water. And so Jesus literally says, I want you to go and make followers, and as you do, I want you to immerse or to dunk them in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, Himself was baptized as a way of modeling for His followers the significance of the act of baptism. Then, as you begin to study through the book of Acts in the New Testament, and Acts really is the history of the early church. It starts uh, at that time right after Jesus goes back to heaven and takes us through the early years of the church. And if you read through the book of Acts, you begin to realize that Jesus' followers took Him at His word when He said to them, I want you to go make followers and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because every person we find In the book of Acts, when we find their story, when they decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. They were immersed into Christ. Let me give you a couple examples of that. If you look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking in Jerusalem. Not long after Jesus has gone back to heaven, there are thousands of people who have gathered. And he begins teaching them about Jesus and about their own sin and the fact that their sin is the reason that Jesus had to die on the cross. And he tells the whole story of Jesus. And the Bible says that there came a point on this day as he was talking that the people were were moved in their hearts. And those of us that are Christ followers, we can identify with a time in our life where we heard the story of Jesus Christ and at some point our hearts were moved. And we would have responded like they did by saying, so what do we do about this? What do we do? to respond to Jesus, to follow Him. Peter answers that question in verse 38. He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They say, what do we do to follow Jesus? Peter says, repent. Acknowledge that you have sin in your life, that you are guilty of sin and that you need forgiveness of your sins. Acknowledge your sin and then be baptized so that your sins can be washed away and you can have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go over a few chapters later to Acts chapter 8, we find another example of this. Here, Philip, another follower of Jesus and a leader in the early church, is interacting with a governmental leader from Ethiopia. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch in this passage. 
this Ethiopian eunuch, as you read about him here briefly, it's very clear that he has a religious background, that he knows about God, that probably his parents taught him to, to love God and to honor God in his life. But as Philip and he are sharing, as they're looking at Scripture and tracing through the life of Jesus and through the Old Testament actually, Philip gets to this point where he must come to an understanding that even though he has believed in God all of these years, he's never been baptized as Jesus modeled. Maybe he ought to do that. And listen to what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. This Ethiopian guy says, I need to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus taught that I ought to be baptized. He commanded it. I want to do it. And they stopped the whole procession of people and he got down into the water and he was immersed or dunked into water. And so as I study through the New Testament, as I listen to what Jesus taught and what He commanded, it is very clear to me that someone who desires to follow Jesus, when they make that decision, when they acknowledge their need for Jesus in their life, that they ought to be baptized. They ought to be immersed or dunked, submerged in water as a way of publicly declaring their faith. As a way of acknowledging their need for Jesus. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 says this, All of you are God's children because of your faith in Christ Jesus. We become His followers by our faith. But then he says this, you were baptized into union with Christ and now you are clothed, so to speak, with the life of Christ Himself. We come to a relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ, but we come into a union with Christ when we are baptized. When we are, so to speak, as he says here, clothed with Christ through baptism. And so I would say, if you're following Jesus, if you desire to follow Jesus, yes, in obedience, you ought to be baptized. You ought to be immersed in water. There's one more question that you ask, and this was asked by several different people, kind of different ways, um, but here was the essence of the question. Do we have to forgive others, and then some specified, even when they don't appear to be sorry or guilty? Well, I think the answer to that question begins by understanding God's forgiveness towards us. You want to turn over in your Bible to the book of Colossians towards the end of the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. To really understand how we ought to respond to people in forgiveness, we have to understand how God responded to us. And here's what Paul writes. Paul was a leader in the church. He writes this in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, as you read that, do you hear Paul say anywhere that for us to be forgiven before we could be forgiven, that we had to come crawling back in great guilt to God? That we had to get down in the dirt and and beg and plead to be forgiven? Now, in fact, the picture that Paul paints here is that before you and I were even born, before you and I had even sinned, God made a provision for us to be forgiven. 
He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross so that it would be possible for us to have forgiveness. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, hey, there's a list here. If you do these sins, then God will readily forgive you. But if you do these terrible things, forget it, God's not going to forgive you. No. The picture that Paul paints here is that before you and I ever did anything wrong against God, before we ever felt the first tinge of guilt about our own sin, God made it possible for us to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And then if you flip over to chapter 3 and verse 13, he kind of gives us then a picture of how am I supposed to respond to other people. He says this, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And as if that isn't enough, then he says this, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul says, I am supposed to forgive others even as I have already been forgiven by God. And did God make me crawl back and say, I'm sorry? Did God make me act really guilty before He would offer me forgiveness? No. No, God forgave us even before we acknowledged our need for forgiveness. Jesus, I think, taught the same thing in Matthew uh, chapter 18. There is a story there that Jesus tells a parable because it's a difficult truth that He wanted us to understand. He tells a story about this servant who goes before his master and the servant owes his master or his ruler a huge, huge sum of money that he has borrowed. And the master calls in this servant that he has lent money to and says, you know, it's time to pay up. You need to pay up today. And the servant begs for another chance, begs not to be sent to prison. And the master, the ruler, gives in and says, okay, another chance to pay me back. And as you read the story, you get the picture here that almost as quickly as he is given the second chance, he exits and he finds a friend of his, another guy who owes him some money. It's a very small amount of money in comparison to what he owes his master. But he says to this friend, this other guy, hey, it's time for you to pay up. I want you to pay up today. And the guy says, I can't. Give me another chance. And the guy says, no. And has him sent to prison because he won't pay back the little debt that he owes him. Well, some other people see what has happened and so they go to the master of the ruler and say, hey, this guy who owes you a whole bunch of money, he just had his friend thrown in jail because he wouldn't pay him back. And the master is not happy and he calls in his servant and says, in the same way that you've treated this other guy, because you wouldn't forgive him his debt, I'm going to have you thrown in prison. And then, to make sure that we understood how it applies to us, Jesus said this in verse 35. He said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says that unless we're willing to forgive others, there becomes a problem between us and God. You see, I know forgiveness is a difficult thing. Jesus didn't say on this day, hey, I know this is really easy. You guys won't have any trouble with this. No, He didn't indicate that because He knew this would be a difficult principle for us to live out in our lives. But Jesus didn't call us just to do easy things. He called us to do some things that are difficult. He called us to forgive others even as we have been forgiven by God. And here's the thing about forgiveness. When I'm not willing to forgive others, sometimes we, I think we do it out of this sense of, no way, I'm not letting them off the hook. 
I'll get them back by not forgiving them. But you know who that hurts? It doesn't really hurt them. It hurts the person who is unwilling to forgive. Because it puts this obstacle between them and their relationship with God. And it creates an environment in their heart that allows bitterness and anger to grow rapidly. And so when Jesus called us to do this difficult thing of forgiving other people, even when they don't seem sorry or guilty, He did it for our own good. Because He wanted us to have hearts that would remain pure and usable by Him. And He didn't want us to allow an obstacle to grow in our life in our relationship with Him. And so, the answer to the question? Yes. God invites and expects us to forgive even when it doesn't seem so easy. Would you pray with me? God, this is a difficult teaching. It's a difficult thing to live out in our lives. And so God, I'd ask You this morning, first of all, to grow in our hearts our understanding of the depth of Your forgiveness towards us. And Father, even as we grow to understand that, that You would increase our ability and our capacity to forgive others. Father, help us to put this into practice, not because it's easy, but because it's right. And because it allows us to enjoy all of the blessings of our relationship with You. God, I thank You for the truth of the Bible. And would You expand our willingness to rely on it and to trust in it. Grow our faith in the Bible. And Father, as You grow that faith, would You help us to put into practice the things that You've called us to do, even when they are different from the way we've grown up, different from what we've heard in other places at other times. God, would You teach us and help us just to rely on the truth of Your Word for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if the, we've got some other questions. Uh, do we have some questions that came in? Let's uh, roll those. Okay. One of six. Oh, okay. Let's move right along then. Um, if God forgives all sins, how can sin keep you from going to heaven? Okay, God has made the provision for forgiveness. But until I accept the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, I carry the guilt of my own sin. Because when I sin, it separates me from God. It puts a, a chasm between me and God. Because God is a just God and He demands that there be a penalty paid for our sin. And it's not until I acknowledge my sin in my relationship with God, and accept His gift of salvation, accept the gift that Jesus has paid for me, acknowledge Him as my Lord and Savior, that it makes it possible for me to get back into that relationship with God. Okay? I'm going to be very brief in these answers because there's so many. Let's move on. If you forgive someone, do you have to let them stay involved in your life? And I think the answer to that is no, you do not. I think there... First of all, hear this. I'm not suggesting that every time somebody does something wrong for us, that that is permission for us to just cut them off from our lives. However, I do think there is a difference between forgiveness sometimes and, um, could I be so bold as to say, uh, us being stupid? When somebody has repeatedly injured us in some way, sometimes that injury is very real and, and physical maybe even, it, it doesn't make sense for us to continue to welcome them back into our lives so that they can hurt us, abuse us, mistreat us. That doesn't mean that I don't forgive them. Just because I don't allow them back into a relationship where they can continue to do harm to me doesn't mean that I can't forgive them. 
there is a difference between forgiveness and continued relationship at the same level. Okay? Verse 3. Is it wrong to baptize babies? Um, I think wrong is a strong word. However, what I see that the Bible teaches, first of all, I would say, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there is evidence that the baptizing of babies was practiced. Why do I think that's not true? And why do I think it's not necessary? I think that following Jesus Christ is a choice that we make, not a choice that can be made by someone else for us. As much as I would like to have been able to choose for my children that they would follow Christ, they had to decide on their own. They both came to a point where at some point they acknowledged and realized, I have sinned against God. I need His forgiveness. I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they had to choose that for themselves. And their being baptized came as a result of their decision to follow Jesus. That they was an act that they needed to do out of obedience, not an act that I could do for them. Is what I believe the Bible teaches. And, and I know very quickly the follow-up question to that is, well, what about a baby that dies um, before they're baptized? Sin is something we choose to do. Is the, this is the short answer. I don't think a child is guilty of sin until they reach that point in life where they are aware that God has said there is a standard of right and wrong and they can make the choice to be disobedient. And so... Prior to that time, they're not guilty of sin. And if they die, I believe they go to heaven. Okay? Again, very short answers. If you are sprinkled, are you considered baptized? Um, the Greek language is a very specific language. And I'm so glad that the writers wrote in the Greek language because it is so specific. The word for baptism that is used throughout the New Testament is always the word baptizo, which means to immerse or sprinkle. Uh, to immerse or dunk, Sorry. This is why off-the-cuff stuff can get you in trouble. Um, to immerse or to dunk. There are specific Greek words for sprinkle and dip. Those words never appear in the New Testament in conjunction with the command or the instructions about baptism. Okay? And so sprinkling is not in the New Testament. Okay? Um, is there ever a need to be rebaptized? Well, I would say to you, if you were sprinkled, that um, that is a legitimate reason to be baptized because you ought to be immersed because that is the mode, the manner that's talked about in the Bible. Um, I think that there have also, I've had uh, encounters with people who um, were baptized at an early age, maybe in elementary school or something, and as they grow older in life, they say, you know, that was not at all my decision. Uh, that was something that I did because everybody else was doing it or my parents kind of pushed me into it. Um, can I do it now as my own choice? Yeah, I think that's perfectly legitimate for somebody to get to that point in life where they say, I need to be rebaptized. Uh, the other side of that is I would say, you know, we go through probably uh, peaks and valleys in our walk with God, and in those valleys sometimes we do things that uh, hurt our relationship with God. There is sin maybe that we get involved in, and I don't think every time that we get involved in sin again, the Bible doesn't teach that every time I sin again, oh, I've got to be baptized again. It doesn't work that way. Okay, number six. Uh, does the Bible say anything about life other than humans? I don't know what you're asking. Um, I mean, yeah, it talks about... Are you talking about life on like other planets, maybe? Um, I don't see any reference to that. Certainly it talks about uh, animals and, um, you know, in creation. 
talks about all the different things that are on the earth that God created and how Adam got the great privilege of trying to name all those, which, by the way, I've always wondered how in the world did he come up with all of those names, but I suppose God helped him. Um, so beyond that, if you ask that question and I'm not answering it all, you can see me afterwards and I'll offer you a quick answer. Okay? That was it, right? Good. Um, let me pray for us and then we're going to move on with some things, okay? Uh, God, uh, thanks for Your Word. It is true. Help us to apply it in every way to our lives and just to seek it above everything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, amen.